Hello, everyone. I am Isabel Trick. I'm an associate director in the Global Macro team at Global Council. This is the second episode of our new podcast series at GC, The Global Month Ahead. So what we're doing here is that at the beginning of each month, I will get together with different colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the month ahead. And we will make sure that you always know more than your friends or your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. So for today's edition, we will focus on Europe's energy crisis, the important elections in um, Brazil and selections in China, as well as the IMF and World Bank annual meetings. I would say to kick us off our first topic, I am joined by Jess Bassi, who leads our work on energy, as well as by Aniko Zevic, an associate director in our Central and Eastern European practice. So I have just come back from a trip to Germany and there cities um, kind of around the country are discussing what kind of light this place might be okay this winter around Christmas markets and so on. And our headlines in the news around kind of lower heating temperatures and should that even apply to kindergartens and schools. And that is basically because Germany is really actively trying to figure out how they are going to meet those energy reduction targets that the, um, that the EU agreed for this winter. And obviously, it's not a surprise. It's not just in the news that tackling the energy crisis is really top of the agenda, but it's really also the dominant topic amongst EU leaders who are getting together for an informal summit in Prague on the 7th of October. So in advance of that meeting, the EU member states actually reached political agreement on different proposals by the European Commission for how to prepare for this winter. Jess, so I know you've been following this really closely. To start off, could you maybe unpack for us what happened at the Energy Council last week and where does that leave Europe's response, both kind of um, as we're going into this winter, but also specifically as we're going towards this leaders meeting in Prague? I think there are two key takeaways from Friday's meeting. So one, what was in the political agreement? Energy ministers reached agreement on three key measures. One, a mandatory demand reduction target in the electricity sector, which will be initially a voluntary target of 10% over the next six months, replicating what we've seen in gas. Secondly, a solidarity contribution on the levy of fossil fuel companies. And thirdly, a cap on the revenue of electricity generators of low cost that have also experienced windfalls from situation of high gas prices, uh, such as renewables, and that is set at 180 euros per megawatt hour. I think the important point to draw out is that package represents a step in the right direction. But what was also important from Friday's meeting was the substance of what wasn't agreed. The Commission wants to focus on demand reduction and let prices rise. Not all member states agree with that approach and a gas price cap is a real issue that is still in play. You're already drawing out kind of a really interesting tension here. So there's both kind of what is agreed at EU level and of what the Commission is eager to achieve. But I guess as we all know, the EU is not um, one country, it is 27 countries and different countries kind of very much have different degrees of reliance on Russian gas, for instance. So I think what would be interesting, Jess, if you could maybe help us understand what's top of the mind, uh, top of mind for leaders in some of the biggest, um, maybe Western and Northern European member states and get a bit of a better sense of what leaders are thinking in Central and Eastern Europe and kind of how do these political dynamics work? From my perspective, the concern is very much how can we do everything we can as policymakers uh, to use all the levers in the toolbox to mitigate the impact of high gas prices? And this is where the debate over a gas price cap comes in play. You have, particularly for Northern Europe, uh, Northern 
happened in Western Europe, a, a big consensus that Europe needs to have a price cap on, on all gas. However, the consensus over what form that takes is still up for play. That's been reflected in the discussions that were taking place on Friday. It feels that the direction of travel is to a price cap on gas for electricity, which is currently in place in Spain and Portugal, but we'll have to see where the debate goes further. Related to that, there is a real concern of economic fragmentation within the bloc. And Germany's energy defence shield that was announced very much to the surprise um, of the commission at the last, at the 11th hour on the fringes of Friday's meeting has really set the cat amongst the pigeons. Because initially the commission was saying, we are sticking to our position because we are siding with Berlin. Berlin has broken ranks. And I think that is triggered this wider debate. Yeah, very interesting because it seems like, of course, if you are one one of the richer member states, as you are if you're Germany, you obviously have a bit more in your coffers to spend and help cushion your your um, your citizens and your industry from the impact of high energy prices. That might not necessarily be the same if we're looking to Central and Eastern Europe. Um, Aniko, what is your sense of kind of the key concerns of member state leaders there? Yes, I have to admit that quite a few countries expressed their disappointment after the council meeting, even though they managed to find a political agreement with the details to be hammered out still, uh, meaning that now the agreement allows all these countries to have quite some flexibility to enact their national measures. And uh, and I think we can't really make a difference between Northern Western Europe and Central Eastern Europe. We have to make difference between the countries where they stand in their responses now to the uh, energy crisis. What I refer to is uh, some countries feel that they have made uh, great steps to, to, to be more independent from Russian energy resources. We just saw on October 1st the opening of the Baltic pipeline, channeling uh, gas from Norway to Poland, or the Greece-Bulgaria gas interconnector that is going to bring Azuri gas and possible LNG supplies into Southeast Europe. And we see that they, they kind of feel that we might be okay for 2022, for the current heating uh, season, as backed up by the analysis of, uh, for example, the International Energy uh, Energy Agency, who who said that we might need to focus now on how to tackle continuing disruptions in 2023. And there are some other countries who are very much feeling the crunch of the economic instability caused by high energy prices. Who would like to see solutions right now? And either they are going to see some EU-led action or they are going to step towards more uh, national measures that are sometimes very much desperate interventions for me. The tension between getting through winter 2022 with kind of an emergency crisis sort of sense and preparing for next winter is going to be a really interesting tension that's going to come out more and more, especially because we do just have very tight international gas markets. There's not that much more LNG to buy. A lot of this kind of new LNG that we're talking about is not going to come online. I think Qatar might have some expansions coming online in like 2025. So we might feel feel a very acute crunch next year. But you also said something interesting, um, Aniko, about kind of individual countries who are really particularly feeling the crisis more. Last week, the Prime Minister of Slovakia said that the energy crisis could kind of kill our economy. So really, the stakes are very, very high. And you've heard talk of um, what's been called the grand bargain that Europe needs to strike to keep um, EU solidarity with Ukraine alive this winter. Could you um, explain a bit more about what this is and how important that is for Central and Eastern Europe, Aniko? Absolutely. Let's start with Slovakia. Then. So uh, the Slovakian Prime Minister Hege was uh, arguing for a pan-European solution to the problem of high energy prices and especially um, 
um, arguing that any windfall tax on energy utilities should be introduced at an EU level because we see that all these um, energy producers are uh, not um, not spread across the EU equally. So Slovakia's argument is that uh, the distribution of these funds uh, should go back to individual countries. And, and of course, that's that's very much detailed and, and there is no agreement about this, even though there is uh, a broad, uh, broad sense of consensus of yes, there might be some windfall profits introduced. And Slovakia is one of the countries who basically said if uh, there is no uh, way to get uh, more EU funding, um, EU solidarity in finances, then they are going to go into uh, nationalizing their energy they produce there. And that fits into some other countries who also said that uh, nationally produced um, uh, electricity, energy uh, should stay inside their borders. They are not going to enact any solidarity measures. So there is a real um, conflict uh, between uh, what we can achieve at the EU level and what needs to be done at the national level. It does sound like all the plans we've made, all the forecasts we have seen about how well we get through this winter does rely on keeping this energy solidarity alive rather than people enacting um, kind of energy nationalism. Um, any last words from you, Jas, before we move on to our next segment? What we need to see in the next phase of the crisis is that shift from energy nationalism to a common approach. And we we'll really need to find a way on that, on those questions of fiscal solidarity and sustainability, because this is a crisis that isn't going to go away. I think that's the real key question for the next phase. Let's leave uh, Europe and a European winter behind for a moment and let's move to two very different regions, to Brazil and China. They're both major BRICS economies. So there's been a lot of debate around kind of how useful that label is, but it is definitely useful for me today because it basically allows me to talk about two developments in both of those countries. Both are going to see, I would say, let's call them leadership events this month. Brazil will have the second round of presidential elections and China will see a leadership selection. I'm going to start with Brazil for now. I have Sonia Vasconcelos with me from our Washington DC office, who has been following that election in Brazil really closely. Not just because Brazil is the largest economy in the Americas after the US and Canada, but because it has been a really, really highly polarized contest. Just this Sunday past on October the 2nd, Brazilians did vote in the first round of the presidential election, and it was always going to be a two-horse race between the current president, Bolsonaro, and the former president, Lula. Sonia. Can you talk us through what happened on Sunday? How did Lula and Bolsonaro both do? And for those of us who have not been watching that election as closely as you, could you maybe give us a bit of background on the two of them? Jair Bolsonaro is the current president of Brazil. He's a former military officer and a member of the conservative social liberal party. Bolsonaro has had a number of controversies throughout his term so far. A lot of people in Brazil blame him for not taking the pandemic seriously enough. He's made fun of masks, mandates, and vaccines. He's made a number of incendiary comments against same-sex marriage and abortion. And he's rolled back protections for indigenous groups and the Amazon rainforest. Bolsonaro's challenger is leftist Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, also known as Lula. He's been basing his campaign on the idea that things were much better when he was president back in the early 2000s. He's a strong supporter of social programs and has poured a lot of money into cash transfer initiatives like Bolsa Familia that has lifted millions out of poverty. However, after he left office, he was embroiled in a national corruption scheme. He was sentenced to prison for nine years, but was later released after serving only one and a half years, after a judge ruled that his incarceration was unlawful due to procedural issues. Lula maintains his innocence. 
However, he is still the founder and leader of the party that has been involved in a number of scandals, and that cloud hangs heavy over his head. The question here is if people can get past Lula's corruption-embroiled past to vote for him. There are many people who would rather not vote for Lula, but have been turned off by Bolsonaro's policies, particularly in the favelas, where Bolsonaro's hardline crime policies have caused fear among people who don't trust that the police have their best interest. On Sunday, Brazilians voted for the first round of the election. The results showed that Lula had captured 48.4% of the vote, while Bolsonaro had 43.2% of the vote. With no one capturing at least half of the vote, there will be a second round runoff election between Bolsonaro and Lula on October 30th. The key takeaway here is that while Lula has the lead, the election was broadly seen as a disappointment for his party and base since pre-election polls had shown that he had a huge lead. Thanks very much, Sonia. I think that was a really interesting uh, development that we saw on the second day. Both what a comeback for Lula, who not that long ago was in prison, and kind of what a surprise for Bolsonaro, who really did not do as well in the polls. There was also a lot of talk about the impact this election is going to have on Brazil's democracy more broadly, kind of regardless of which candidate wins. And given that the result of the first round was tighter than we expected, how do you think that might impact on the ability of either of the candidates to govern? Yeah, absolutely. So whoever wins will be dealing with a very divided Brazil, given how close the election is. And increased polarization in the country will make it difficult for any candidate to govern. But there's two points I want to make here. The first is that Bolsonaro's strong performance on Sunday showed that his far-right brand of politics has left a permanent mark on the country, regardless of if he ends up winning the runoff later in the month. In fact, a large number of his party members won congressional seats. The second point here is that if Lula does win, bring back members of his former administration that have been closely involved in the various corruption scandals, further eroding Brazil's institutions. That's really interesting. And I think the, the legacy of far-right politics is something that we, um, that we the US, <laughs> has to contend with um, just as much. And I think that is where some of the interesting comparisons um, come from that people have been drawing between Bolsonaro and Trump, including kind of that one of the most interesting things Bolsonaro was done was take a page like straight out of that classic Trump playbook by trying to undermine the legitimacy of Brazil's um, electoral process before the results were even known. And given Donald parallels. How do you think Bolsonaro might react to a potential loss at the end of the month? Do you think he'll accept that? Do you think he would con concede? Or could we see kind of a US-style January 6th type of uprising in response? Definitely. So Bolsonaro has spent months repeatedly questioning the, reliabil the reliability of Brazil's voting system, claiming that the electronic voting system is easily susceptible to fraud and sowing doubts about the validity of the election to his base. Bolsonaro's voters have really bought into this narrative, claiming that they don't trust the voting system themselves. Bolsonaro has previously said that he will accept the results of the election if and only if he deems that there was no fraud. As an American, like you said, I can't help but compare this to President Trump and the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But the key difference here is that Brazil is a much more violent country than the U.S., and its democratic institutions are much more fragile. Many people are afraid of potential coup from Bolsonaro's government if he does lose the election and refuses to accept it, especially considering his tight 
relationship with the country's military. And while all this is hypothetical, mass public distrust could help Bolsonaro postpone a future transfer of power by helping him invoke emergency executive authority. But speculations aside, Bolsonaro's campaign to create a level of distrust within Brazil's system has set precedents for not accepting electoral results and has already caused damage that could last for years. Absolutely. So it's not just that we need to look forward to October 30th and see what happens at the second round election, but we have to see what happens afterwards. Will these results be accepted? Will they be challenged? And how might the transfer of power work? But moving from an election where we have um, genuine questions around who is likely to win and how that is going to go, we're going to move to an event where there are slightly fewer question marks around the outcome. Because this month, China's Party Congress kicks off on October the 15th. And there are definitely a fair few unanswered questions about some of the key personnel changes. There is virtually no doubt that Xi Jinping will continue as president and general secretary of the Communist Party. I have Jens Brestus with me. He's an associate director in the global macro team, and he leads our China analysis. So Jens, there have been quite a lot of rumors lately about Xi being challenged, including even coup rumors. Um, what's your take on that? Is there any substance to these rumors or would you say that Xi is really as strong as ever? Thank you, Isabel. Um, I think the short answer is no. Um, I don't think there's any truth to those rumors. Uh, these are quite common before big political events in um, in China and particularly uh, ahead of the party congress and particularly ahead of a party congress where in theory we would see a new general secretary. I would also say that even in terms of just discussions and challenges to, to Xi in terms of the composition of the leadership, so the people that will be in the key positions. I think there's there's little evidence of any real challenge to, to Xi's control of that group and, and obviously what that means for, for policy going forward. Uh, there's no real evidence. There's also always lots of talk about this. Uh, I think Xi's in, in a strong position to pick and choose almost whomever uh, he, he wants to fill those uh, important positions. There will always be party elders that will be grumbling, especially those that were part of the reform and opening process. They don't like the direction the country is going, but I don't think they're strong enough to really to really make an impact. I think what would be helpful is if you could help us understand better what some of the positions are that we should be paying attention to. And do you think, even if we're thinking that far ahead, do you think we could see a successor name, even if maybe indirectly so? We will see some some changes to key positions. I think there's, in terms of age, there's a lot of talk about how age plays an important role. In the past, it probably has more than now. Uh, Xi Jinping has already shown during previous party congress that he doesn't care too much about age. So there's an, an all unwritten rule, uh, which is called seven up, eight down. If you're 67, you're allowed to continue in the standing committee. If you're 68, you're kicked out. Uh, but she has already showed that he's willing to um, remove people who aren't 68 because they might not be close allies to him. But he wants to make changes that better support his policy implementation priorities. There are some people who've already said that they will step down. So Premier Li Keqiang said that he's not going to continue as Premier. He might continue in another important role in government, uh, but he won't continue as Premier. So that is the first position of uh, importance and probably the one that is debated the most. Um, I would say that uh, most of the candidates are close loyalists, Xi loyalists. There is one sort of wild card, a guy called Hu Chunhua, who historically has been seen as a guy who's closer to, to Premier Li Keqiang and also Hu Jintao, the former general secretary. He's also spent time in Guangdong. He's seen as a guy who, who focuses on, on liberal economic policies so that he's 
a bit different than the other ones who who are much more closer to to Xi Jinping. But again, he's also spending lots of time writing op-eds in People's Daily about the, what great things Xi Jinping is doing. So he's not really a he's not a challenger or an, a, a big deviation if he gets the nod to become premier. The other position I would point to is who will take over from uh, Liu He, uh, who's a vice premier and he's uh, the main economics and finance guy, basically. He's 70 and he will also probably not con- continue. He's one of Xi Jinping's closest allies. It's not because he's getting kicked out, they're childhood friends, etc. But he's also likely to step down. She will probably replace him with the guy who heads the National Development and Reform Commission, an important um, economic government agency. Uh, his name is He Li Feng, and he's also a close Xi ally, and he fits the bill because that agency is very much about the role of the state in economic planning. And obviously that is important to Xi Jinping's focus too when it comes to economic policy. So he will be a guy that could help Xi implement the policies going forward. When it comes to successor, Hard to say. My personal uh, belief is that we won't really see plan for for a successor. You might even see that some of the guys that potentially could be a successor is not included in the standing committee just because Xi Jinping doesn't want to show that here's the successor because he wants to show that for the foreseeable future, I'm your guy. Interesting. Uh, he's going to play his cards close to his chest on that. Exactly. So he might keep some of those guys that he's grooming outside for a little bit longer and maybe put them in important positions later. All right. Interesting. So we should be paying attention to the premiership and the vice premiership. But I also briefly want to move away just from personal questions because there has been a bit of buzz and a bit of speculation that we might expect some big policy announcements, especially on the economy. But if I understand correctly, that's actually not normally what party congress is used for. Do you still think we might get some hints this time on policy direction? Um, You already mentioned COVID. I think that would be an interesting one that people would be paying attention to. So I think there's a lot of hopium out there about big policy announcements, the big stimulus package, or some of that, the abandonment of the zero COVID policy. Uh, There's a lot of chatter about this. I don't think we will see any of that, mainly because of what you just said, that this event is mainly about personnel, not policy. That doesn't mean that policy is not part of the event. Obviously, who will be picked to to run the different agencies or who will become premier, etc., gives us an indication about the future of policy. But I think Xi Jinping is in such a strong position that we shouldn't expect any big policy announcements. Uh, probably the most important thing to think about from a policy perspective is that she will like to continue to pick people that is like-minded, that will make it easier for him to implement policy because one of his key things that he's been focusing on to be seen as credible is to not just talk a lot about policies, but actually implementing them. Because that is, for us who who follow Chinese politics, policy, it's um, something that often there's a lot of chatter, but sometimes little implementation. So I, and I think Xi Jinping has been doing a lot too. He's still sticking to his guns on trying to reform the real estate sector, even though it's creating all kinds of havoc in the economy. So continuing with that, uh, I think is important and seeing a more united, perhaps leadership should support this too, going forward. While economic announcements might not actually dominate the party congress in China, I would imagine they will certainly play center stage at the annual meetings of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. That is an absolute key event in the diaries of economic policymakers, and it kicks off on October the 10th. We should expect finance ministers, development ministers, central bank governors, and officials from almost every government in the world, as well as banks and private companies, and they're all going to meet in Washington. I have Thomas Grotowski with me, Senior Practice Director of the Global Macro team. Thomas, I would say those meetings are seen as an opportunity to essentially 
take the temperature of the global economy and discuss potential policy responses to some of the, the biggest common economic challenges, especially. So we got a bit of a sense of this already from our discussions on Europe and China. We're probably, we're not looking at a positive and optimistic economic mood as we're going into these meetings. Maybe can you help us set the scene a little bit? What is the current mood like going into the meetings and what can we expect from the IMF and the World Bank on the outlook for the next year? This year's meetings will be really under special and complicated economic but also geopolitical circumstances. There is a real prospect that we're entering a longer period of, of slow growth and I think that is what the IMF in its uh, different publications will also uh, emphasize that, that the growth outlook has darkened, financial stability risks are rising rapidly, and, uh, and governments across the world are increasingly under pressure to deal with different uh, social, uh, social demands. So I expect actually that the IMF will reduce its forecast for next year. We have seen the OECD uh, do this recently from 2.9 to 2.2%, which if you take away the recessions of 2009 and 2020 would be the slowest growth in 30 years. Part of the story is that the economy is faltering because of the war in Ukraine and what this does to um, supply chains and commodity markets. And of course, even though commodity markets uh, and commodity prices have come down to some extent, they're still very high. And there are um, attempts, for example, by OPEC also uh, to make, make sure that they stay at a very elevated level. So if you if you think about those drivers, it's clear that inflation is already very high above targets in in most uh, you know economies, and will also remain high for the foreseeable future, which creates its uh, you know additional uh, challenges. Of course, central banks, especially in in major advanced economies, have signaled more tightening, uh, but that is creating creating risks uh, that we recently saw, for example, in in the UK, where rapidly rising uh, rates can actually uh, potentially, you know, uh, destabilize uh, the entire financial system. One other, uh, perhaps key key debate is uh, what will happen with Europe. Europe's, uh, you know, energy dependence on on Russia has been revealed as a, as a major risk, and so I think it's pretty clear that the European economy will fall into recession next year. And then there is the wider question that if Europe uh, slides into a recession, uh, the United States might already be in a recession right now while China is slowing very slowly uh, or is slowing rapidly, growing slowly and might, uh, you know, might have a much, uh, uh, much lower rate of growth next year. So there's a question, where will grow, growth come from and, and what is actually the risk of a recession that is uh, synchronized across uh, major economies, which would be remarkable. Absolutely. And given what you've just said, growth is not going to come from Europe. It's not going to come from the US. It's not going to come from China. So in a way, no surprise that we're going to see a forecast that might be the most negative in the past 30 years if we take aside those other two previous um, recessions. But given that really complex and complicated context, we're obviously expecting a really packed agenda. So if you could draw out a few key issues that you think will really dominate the debate, where do you think that focus is going to land? It's a good question uh, because there's so many issues that are, you know, that policymakers currently face. Um, but if I could pick out one, I would probably choose uh, financial stability because that is an area that uh, really concerns everyone, perhaps in different different shades and different aspects of it, but it really touches uh, uh, on, on every economy. And one particular challenge here is, of course, uh, the strong US dollar, which... Uh, 
of course, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis advanced economies, but even even vis-a-vis -vis, uh, many emerging uh, economies, um, you know, has has made uh, dramatic gains this year, which means that uh, it's sucking out, or that it means that the United States is sucking out money uh, of emerging markets uh, and makes it much harder for them to service their their debt. Of course, given that we are in a dollar-based system. Uh, dollar strength is a symptom of, of a wider underlying problem, which is that there is a lack of liquidity. Part of the reason is that there are just, there's just much more debt in the world than there are dollars. This dollar liquidity issue is clearly something that is uh, on everyone's mind. And if you combine this with the bleak outlook that I described earlier, a recession basically means that incomes fall Uh, but if you combine this with, uh, you know, debt becoming much harder to service, then you, you obviously you enter a, a very complicated set of, of challenges for policymakers. I would say the debt question is particularly um, an interesting one. The other week I listened to the speeches at the United Nations General Assembly by both um, the presidents of Kenya and Nigeria. Um, both of them really touched on the topic of debt and the new um, president of Kenya, William Bruto. He argued that some of the pandemic era debt relief should actually be extended. What kind of um, policy responses would you expect to come out of the annual meetings, maybe both on debt um, and beyond? Do, are you expecting any major announcements like that? The the, the key meeting that uh, we will watch is uh, the meeting of G20 finance ministers and central bank uh, governors. Uh, there are you know, a series of meetings such as uh, the International Monetary and Financial Committee, uh, led by the uh, IMF, uh, also Development Committee, IMF World Bank, and other stakeholders uh, together. But I think the, the G20 meeting is is the real uh, important one. And uh, under Indonesia's presidency, um, you know, the G20 have or have very much set out an agenda uh, that very much focuses on the post-pandemic recovery. Uh, but of course, much of that has now been overshadowed by the war in Ukraine and what that has done. Uh, to the global economy. Uh, I think there are a couple of important questions. One is, you know, what is the right policy mix between fiscal policy and monetary policy? In an environment where inflation is high, and part of that inflation obviously driven by energy, uh, so many governments, especially in advanced economies, are under enormous pressures to shield their populations from, from those rising prices. But of course, if done in an untargeted way, that can fuel inflation even more. And so I think, you know, the important question then in advanced economies is especially how you, how you get that mix right in order to uh, make sure that financial conditions or monetary conditions are not, uh, you know, tightening much or are not required to be tightened much faster than what we believe at the moment, largely because, you know, advanced economy central banks largely set global monetary conditions. So that has an impact on everyone in the world. Of course, then the challenge for emerging and developing economies, and especially those who are not exporters of commodities, who are not benefiting from higher prices and are not receiving more dollars as a, as a, um, uh, as a result, is how to 
you know, how to deal with falling uh, exchange rates, uh, rising debt levels, and um, and many other supply chain chain issues that uh, that they face in this current environment. I would fully agree with you here. I think emerging markets really have been hit by crisis upon crisis, and this is a really complicated picture of different kind of interconnected challenges that they're that they're facing. And they do have much less fiscal firepower. They do have less kind of monetary policy uh, wriggle room to to play with than developed markets to essentially spend or um, kind of otherwise work their way out of this crisis. Um, do you think there's going to be any interesting announcement on what we might be able to do to support emerging and developing markets? Just as a final question before we wrap up. Those low-income countries, they are um, covered by um, by the inclusive framework and debt restructuring that was uh, put in place last year, basically as a follow-up from the debt uh, service suspension initiative, which was um, put in place during the pandemic. And so this inclusive framework, even though it was agreed uh, on about a year ago, I don't think it has made a big difference so far. I would agree. Not a single country has had its debt restructured under that program yet. Exactly. And some countries like Zambia, Chad, uh, I think Ethiopia even, uh, you know, there have been discussions uh, going on. And of course, you know, I think a key achievement of that uh, framework was to bring China more into the fold of what previously was mostly done by a you know, the advanced economy or Western uh, um, Paris club. But I think not much has been achieved um, within this inclusive framework. And so there's really a question to what extent the, the whole restructuring process can uh, become much more efficient, but also perhaps to what extent you need to uh, expand the, the scope of countries that will be covered because the current crisis uh, and the potential crisis that we, we face, you know, the liquidity that is drying up, it's not only an issue for developed economies, but also for emerging markets that in normal times have access to international uh, bond markets, but now face severe uh, liquidity issues and severe problems in, in servicing uh, debts. Now, I think the last uh, perhaps measure that will be discussed uh, is again, how you can use special drawing rights, so the IMF's currency, to support, again, liquidity, provide liquidity to some of uh, the emerging and development markets. Last year, in August, the IMF agreed to what was then an historic um, increase of SDRs. But of course, the, the vast majority of SDRs uh, went to uh, developed economies. And so many emerging and developing economies have said, uh, you know, that's, that's not enough for us. Uh, it looks good on paper, but it doesn't make a big uh, impact. Discussion on if you will, a channeling of some of the SDRs from developed economies to developing emerging economies has not uh, yielded uh, many results, uh, have stalled. And so I think um, there will again be a discussion about what type of mechanism, be it through the IMF, through multilateral development banks or other, uh, other organizations or platforms. Um, you know, there are different ways of how you can do it, but the question how you can perhaps reinvigorate that, de that debate and help uh, some of the countries most affected by the crisis. That, of course, or well, all of that is extremely complicated politically. And, uh, you know, we talked here mostly about the economic challenges. I just briefly mentioned in the beginning, of course, you know, the very complicated geopolitical environment, not only because of the war in Ukraine, also because of uh, tensions with, with China, others, uh, of course, you know, these are all very important players uh, at the global stage. And so, uh, you know, sorting out the politics of that uh, will be extremely complicated. 
but um, we'll be we'll see to what extent perhaps the annual meeting will will help to resolve some of these issues. Absolutely, I think there's really going to be a big focus on whether we are going to see progress on some of these initiatives that are not new, but where we have currently failed, or where especially emerging markets, developing markets have failed. Not enough progress has been achieved. So it's going to be a big question mark. Is this going to be all talk, no action, or are we actually going to see some some change here? But on this note, I would say we are at the end of our second episode of the Global Month Head podcast. We're clearly looking at a very interesting October. Europe, I would say, is going to struggle to maintain its cohesion in the face of a potentially really tough winter. We have a potential leadership change in Brazil. We're looking out for leadership continuity in China, but some other interesting announcements on personnel there. And of course, we've got policymakers gathering in Washington to try and find solutions to what, what looks like one of the most kind of complex and contracted economic crises in decades. Unfortunately, I would say this is not really a good news podcast per se, but if you did find this interesting and engaging, the good news is that we will be back at the beginning of each month to give you a look ahead. And as always, if you, your business or your investments are exposed to any of what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our contact details um, and the contact details of our presenters on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in our podcast notes. So thank you to Jess, Aniko, Sonia, Jens and Thomas. And thanks to you for listening. 